if we just look at chemical reactions from all possible chemical reactions, most of them will never take place in our universe. Just so many that there's no possibility that they will happen. And still we have such a rich chemistry that led to biology and the same, all possible biological interactions will never take place. All possible social interactions will never take place. Uh, all possible ideas will never <laughs> materialize. But still, that minimum infinitesimal region of the space of the possible that actually gets instantiated even just once in the history of a universe needs to be viable in, <laughs> in some way, even for a short moment. And of course, that constrains which ones will survive or which ones will endure, which ones will evolve. How do we get a handle on complex systems thinking? What are the implications of this science for philosophy? And where does philosophical tradition foreshadow findings from the scientific frontier? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. In this episode, we speak with Carlos Gershenson, SFI sabbatical visitor and professor of computer science at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, where he leads the Self-Organizing Systems Lab, among many other titles you can find on his website in our show notes. For the next hour, we'll discuss his decades of research and writing on a vast array of core complex systems concepts and their intersections with both Western and Eastern philosophical traditions, a first for this podcast. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. For HD virtual backgrounds of the SFI campus to use on video calls and a chance to win a signed copy of one of our books from the SFI press, please help us improve our SciComm by completing a survey linked in the show notes or just buy a copy of the recently resurfaced SFI Press archival volume, Complexity, Entropy, and the Physics of Information. There's still time to apply for the Complexity Gains UK program for PhD students. Apps close March 15th. Or come work for us. We're on the lookout for a new digital media specialist, an applied complexity fellow in sustainability, a research assistant in emergent political economies, and a payroll accounts payable and receivable specialist. You can also join our Facebook discussion group to meet like minds and talk about each episode. Thank you for listening. Carlos Gershenson, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been great watching you give these thematic talks in our seminar series over the last few months, and I'm excited to see the whole thing. We'll link to the first five. And we're going we're gonna to dip into a little bit of that in the show, but you've also written a lot of interesting stuff at the intersection of complex systems science and philosophy that I want to get to. So anyway, let's just start by giving people a little bit of background about who you are as a person and how it is that you came to devote your life to the exploration and the inquiry around all of this stuff. Well, I guess I was curious since I was a child. My parents stimulated that curiosity. For example, when I was six, my dad took me to a program that was organized by the Mexican Academy of Sciences to teach kids how to program with Logo. I had many teachers that also stimulated that in different ways back in Mexico City. And I studied their computer engineering and also a bit of philosophy. Later, I went for a master's in evolutionary adaptive systems at Sussex University in the UK. So that's about 20 years ago. Then I did my PhD in Brussels at the Free University and then a postdoc at the New England Complex Systems Institute. Then I joined the faculty back in Mexico City at the National University. So you've, like I was telling you before we started this call, your list of research citations is extensive, especially someone who seems as young as you are. <laughs> so I've talked with David Krakauer about this. He says there's two kinds of people that seem to populate our research network. And some of them are people that are interested in very 
specific narrow domains, but they want to bring this whole palette of complex systems tools to it. And then there are these people that are just interested in everything. And you seem <laughs> like one of those second categories. So I'm curious what kinds of questions based on this enormous bouquet of stuff animated you, continue to animate you? Like, how would you delimit or explain what it is? It seems like you came in through computer science. So like, yeah, what are you really, what windmill are you really tilting after in your career here? Yeah, I chose computer engineering at the university I studied because it was like the broadest program I could find. So it was not only computer science, it was also math and physics and even economy and philosophy and history because I was interested in all of that. So I think that you can use the lens of complex systems to observe any phenomena and it can benefit any discipline. So in a way, I've tried to do that at the theoretical level, at the engineering level, even the philosophical level, and also at the arts level. So in my case, it has been, I think, to combine all of these because, for example, you will have better theory if you manage to test it with applications. And of course, your applications will be better grounded in solid theory. And of course, you can have better arguments to philosophize about it if you already have experience with trying to solve real-world problems. And I guess in art, you can explore creativity that can be beneficial also for the other three. Well, what I'd like to do, I think, is... Some, we don't typically do this on the show, but because <laughs> you've written both your own quantitative research as well as lit reviews, as well as more like philosophical pieces about the way that complexity science changes classical thinking in philosophy. I'd like to run that circuit actually kind of in a circle yep. and start by inviting you to break down for us this paper. Francis Heiligen, yep. who was at your PhD advisor. Yes. You've written a lot of papers with this guy, especially early on. And you've got this one in particular, How Can We Think the Complex? Yes. That was a book chapter. And I'd like for you to just break this down because you make about half a dozen key distinctions between complexity thinking and classical or Cartesian thinking. And yes. uh, even if somebody's been listening to the show for 101 episodes, I, <laughs> I find that the distinctions that you've made here are really clear. So take us through, please. Yep. So indeed, during my PhD, the title of my thesis is Design and Control of Self-Organizing Systems. But then it was also something I felt like doing to understand better what was complexity, what was self-organization, what was emergence and so on. But the fact that I did it during my PhD hasn't stopped. So I <laughs> still write and think about these issues. We also collaborated with Paul Sillier's from South Africa, who passed away a few years ago. I have the opportunity to interact with Edgar Morin in a couple of occasions. So trying to summarize everything that has been done, because we could spend several <laughs> episodes just on this topic, like traditional philosophy, which we could call reductionist, tries to simplify phenomena in order to predict. That has been extremely successful. We have duplicated life expectancy because of this. Cars, air travel, internet, everything is thanks to reductionists. But there's this phrase of Moray Gelman, redu reductionism is correct, but incomplete. So <laughs> what is missing from reductionism, when you simplify, you tend to ignore interactions, and that's what characterizes complexity. So what happens when you put attention to interactions or you consider them as something real, not something that's just something extra? And then you perhaps most relevant aspect is that your prediction is limited. Reductionism tries to simplify in order to predict, which is desirable, because then you can try to solve problems before it's too late. However, if you have complexity, meaning interactions, this will generate novel information. And we are taught in high school that if you have, let's say, initial and boundary conditions and the laws that rule the system, you will be able to predict the future. And it has its roots in Laplace's demon. But we know that because of these interactions, they generate new information. So it's not enough to have initial and boundary conditions and the laws that govern a system. You need actually to run the system. And the technical term for this is computational irreducibility. So then what to do when you can't predict? What we have been exploring is to adapt. And self-organization is one way of adapting. And like that, many 
pieces start to fall down that were implications of a reductionist scientific perspective that have been taken as true in philosophy. So we explore all of that and we keep on exploring all of that and what are the implications of considering interactions, what should we do with our limited predictability and in general how to face complexity. So one of the things that you mentioned also in the work you did with Dirk Helbing on the slower is faster yep. effect. And you talk about, we just had Alison Gopnik on the show, and Gopnik talks about what she calls the explore-exploit tension, yep. which is, you mentioned this in a couple places, that due to demands made on decision-making, that there you can act with too little information or you can act with too much. And classical thinking tends to, like you just said, tends to assume that you're going to make better decisions if you have all of the, inf this is like assuming that it's even possible and we know that it's not. But yeah, I'd love to hear this piece, because this also came up when we were talking with Simon Dedeo about Simon sees science as successful in large part because there is a tension between the, the ways that different people care or like the aesthetics they have about what constitutes a satisfying explanation. But some people want a, a, an all-embracing, conciliant explanation and some people want something that's very limited and parsimonious and can fit on a t-shirt <laughs> and that's that's the difference and that's kind of related to the way that Alison Gopnik talks about the way that children kind of relate to problem solving and, and the way that adults do and so just one more thing I'll stack on this is when we're when we talk about in in this and, and other work actually you talk about it kind of skipping ahead to all of these things. But you talk about it in the piece that you co-authored with a team led by Fernanda Sanchez-Puig on heterogeneity and how systems will tune themselves to have heterogeneity across time. And so you talk about some of the work of somebody like Andre de Roos, who looks at the way that ecology benefits from understanding organisms as having these distinct life stages where the larva might be feeding on something else from the adult. And so, yeah, so there's, I don't know, there's a lot there. Yeah. But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the value of heterogeneity and diversity and how it also relates to these questions that you pursued with Dirk about when we get counterintuitive results in how systems adapt by splitting up and exploring multiple different strategies. Yeah. So I, I think all of this can be seen as particular cases of balance in the sense that, let's say, exploration, exploitation, we want to have balance between both that will, let's say, make search optimum. And of course, we know from work of David Wolpert and North Relaunch Theorems that depending on the search space, basically, you need different strategy to search that search space. So this balance is moving, which is the same what happens in the slower is faster effect. And also the case of Simon, in some cases you, you might want to know all the details and to predict all the information of a phenomenon. But then that of course has a very high cost. You need lots of information. And on the other extreme, you might want to have a very general theory, but then that won't be very practical because it will say something like stuff is, and that's always true. And, but then there's not much you can do with that. So of Again, the balance lies depending on the context that you are trying to apply a, a theory and what are your interests or the purpose of that theory, what are you trying to achieve. And then the, let's say, how much detail is needed will depend on that. So again, a balance, but you cannot pre-specify what's the optimum balance beforehand. So it's something that's, that is shifting. Relating it to heterogeneity, it seems that when you don't know beforehand what's the optimum balance that will be best. If you have a variety of elements, either spatial or temporal or functional, then you don't really need to find the precise parameters. You don't need to fine tune parameters because some of those elements probably will be close to the optimum. So then you can exploit those. It seems so. It is something general that nature does. And I don't know whether <laughs> with a specific purpose or it's just easier to have heterogeneity because actually you would need to put some effort into having homogeneity in many cases. So this, we've never actually talked 
about this on the show before, but since you're not the only Buddhist on campus here, we're here, we're in Fred Cooper's office. I've had some great conversations with him about this particular intersection. You've written some interesting work on the relationship between Buddhist philosophy and complex system science. And something that came in, again, on this, how can we think the complex with Haligan is you talk about how in more classical thinking or Aristotelian logic, a phenomenon begin, belongs, as you write, to either to category A or not A. It cannot be both neither in between or it depends. And yet Buddhist tetradic logic also includes it can be both A and B or neither A nor B or these kinds of things. And then later on in the section on indeterminacy, you make a distinction from a paper you wrote in 2002 between absolute being and relative being, which is even say you picked up Tibetan Buddhism in 2009, but this is something I've really only ever encountered in more esoteric philosophical tracts where, or the writing of Timothy Morton, who talks a lot about in object-oriented ontology, how you can never actually know the whole thing. So I'd love to hear you talk about this issue, which is fundamental to both the science and the philosophy of this whole thing about how observers are inherently finite and yep. they can't gather complete information about something. And so there is, we talk a lot about the, just the, the fact that, like you said a moment ago, that uh, these things are really pluralistic and therefore there isn't like a right way. There are only more or less functional ways yep. of understanding. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how this works in practice and how you've unpacked this in your own yep. research. So I think that that figure of the circle sphere. <laughs> helps illustrate this point. So imagine you have a sphere and it's half white, half black, but actually you can just perceive it one perspective. So some people will see a black circle, some people will see a white circle, some people will see half and half. And then we can fight holy wars trying to decide or convince each other that the color is, that the circle is white or black. But of course that will not change the sphere. And we cannot make an exercise of democratic mathematics and just take the average because it could be that the majority is perceiving the sphere from a particular perspective. So we can say that these different perspectives are contexts that different people have or the same person can have different contexts in different conditions. So you cannot really say that the circle is really white or really black because you cannot really observe it from all perspectives and real phenomena can have, let's say, an infinite number of dimensions because you can always describe them from novel perspectives. So instead of trying to say, okay, it is this way or it's not that way, it can be more productive to say, okay, from this perspective, it's this color, from that perspective, it is that color. And of course, that doesn't mean that anything goes and then all the colors are valid because from a specific perspective, you can really check, okay, it's from this perspective, it's white, and we can all agree on that. So so how does this affect it, the way that you actually conduct research? Like, how does this, when the rubber hits the road, and you're talking about model selection, Yeah, like we, we have this kind of inside joke here at SFI, there were a few years where everyone wanted to see everything as a network, or everyone yep. wanted to see everything as the outcome of a scaling law. And the longer that this science matures, the longer a trail of these different sort of preferred framings stretches out behind us. So how do you, in, in practice in your work, how do you actually decide the correct approach for the appropriate context? Yeah, so I'm, I tend to be pragmatic. And of course, there are these discipline jokes of mathematicians making fun of physicists because they're not rigorous enough, and then physicists making fun of engineers because we are not rigorous enough. And of course, we can make fun of I don't know, doctors or psychologists because they're not rigorous enough according to our standards. So since I have formation as an engineer, then in many cases, I just try to make things work and afterwards look for explanations and it might not be the most elegant thing. But in a way, I could kind of guard myself behind Wittgenstein and say, okay, that's <laughs> let's be pragmatic about it. Because of course, we can spend all efforts trying to justify something, but if it does what, what it should do, then I guess it's, it shouldn't be too bad, at least on the, in the right direction. Well, so this just, because it's kind of easy to go in circles around this kind of a question. Yeah. One of the things that comes up again and again in your work and related work is 
the way that as you, you talk about adaptation in an organization and adaptation requires some kind of balance between memory and forgetting. You need to be able to forget in order to adapt. Yep. So I was actually talking about this with Michael Lockman the other day when you ask a question such as, well, we want to tune a research organization like SFI to produce novelty. Yep. In order to do that, you have to know which holes you've already dug in this kind of a terrain. And so the question of how do you even orient, say, scientific research or technological innovation in an organization also requires the, it's a complexity economics question where it's like, you have to know what you're actually measuring for, or like what the, yeah. like what you're actually tuning this thing to do. Also, you don't want to lose what you already have in the sense that, okay, we want novelty, but we still want to keep the good things that are working. And actually, evolution has to solve the same problem. So it, this has been studied by Stuart Kaufman, by Andreas Wagner, and many others. Because how evolution works, the genetic level, at the cultural level, at the economic level, is by exploring, but organisms, in order to be viable, they need to keep on functioning. So there's, again, this balance between robustness and adaptability, that robustness basically keeps your functions uh, as they should. Then adaptability allows you to explore new things. And actually, heterogeneity seems to favor both as well. Th that's how the idea of heterogeneity arose because we were studying rank dynamics with colleagues from the Physics Institute in Mexico. And it turns out that the most important elements of a wide variety of complex systems change slower than not so important elements. So let's say, since I knew this literature from evolution, it made sense to me that you don't want your relevant elements to change, so that gives you robustness. But then the least relevant elements have the freedom to explore without breaking everything down. So that heterogeneity also gives you the opportunity to explore and kind of possibly innovate in a sustainable way. Because if everything is changed, it's too bad. And if nothing changes, that's also bad. So yeah, and that, but, and then it's like we're, and then we're back at the question of well, in order to know which elements are important to conserve, yeah, you have to be adaptable at a different time scale. Then so that's to the sort of question about whether the economy as we have it now is that paperclip machine that's <laughs> optimized for the wrong thing and it's turning the whole world into paperclips. <laughs> so you talk about this again to go back to the paper with Haligan. You mentioned, and I think this is going to be familiar to anyone listening. You, you say, an entrenched culture in an organization can be very difficult to change as new measures are actively or passively resisted, ignored, or deflected. Such a system destroys distinctions as distinct causes will lead to the same outcomes. That's a robust system, but it's a system that's not necessarily tuned yeah. to achieve the best results. And so how do you, based on this work, how do you imagine that organizations can better implement this understanding into accommodating adaptability without destabilizing themselves. Yeah. yeah so Ashby, who was a cyber, British cybernetician from middle of the 20th century, one of his contributions was the law of requisite variety. So this basically says that in terms of control theory, that a controller should have at least the same variety as that which is trying to control. And by variety, we can just think number of states. So imagine you have a robot in a factory and you want the robot to manipulate six objects. So it should distinguish at least those six different objects in order to function. But then when you take that law of requisite variety to organizations, to governments, we see that they don't have the requisite variety to deal with economy, with societies, and with many other things. So that kind of explains why they fail so often. And it's not trivial to either increase the variety of these organizations or decrease the variety of that which they are trying to control, which for our purposes, we could use variety as a synonym of complexity. But then it's, it's like a thermometer that you can apply to organizations and say, okay, how many things we have to deal with? And then do we have the capacity to deal with all those things? Yes or no? Let's say how many unexpected things we have to deal with every month? How well are we dealing with those? Does it break everything else that we had planned or not? So these sort of questions can help 
adjust the organization mm. to an appropriate level of adaptability because basically the things that are constantly occurring and you can plan for them then you don't need to change for them then there are other things that every now and then it's something new and then you need to dedicate time and effort to address those things and of course you want to be able to do everything in parallel yeah there are a lot of ways that we could move from there but i want to bring it back to when slower is faster just because this is yep. this is a review full of work some of which is your own like the work on self-organizing traffic light control that i think gives people a lot of really tangible real world examples of how systems either do or could accommodate this kind of flexibility in their design. So yeah, you gave a lot of these examples in the talk that you gave here that we'll link from the show notes. But yeah, let's talk about stuff like logistics and supply chains and transportation infrastructure and how this stuff is actually working in practice. Yeah. So so traditionally, most of these were solved with linear algebra or some other formal approach. And there again, you basically tr try to predict or optimize, and then you idealize the problem and uh, in an abstract way you solve it, and supposedly you're it. You are you're done. The thing with these problems is that they're changing constantly. The technical term is non-stationary, and it's basically that the problem itself is changing. So if you thought you had a solution, the moment you implement it, it's already obsolete. And they are non-stationary precisely because of complexity. If you have lots of elements interacting and they generate new information, that, that information changes the problem, then your solution needs to adapt at the same timescales at which the problems change. So it seems that in many cases, engineers or just that deal with these problems prefer to ignore this fact and then just try to, say, more or less cope with it and leave some margins. But then when you take a different approach and instead of trying to predict something that you know will change and that you cannot really predict, you shift your approach to adaptation, then you can achieve much better performance, in some cases optimal, in some cases even beyond optimal. So that's this paper for public transportation systems about supra-optimality, which perhaps I didn't send it to you. But. No, but I did see it yeah. on the Google Scholar page. And then again, so it's funny because actually this was a conversation we were just having in the comms office about crisis control and when things, we were cited Daniel Kahneman and when things require an, an, an immediate response versus when they don't. And when I had, the first time I had Rajiv Sethi on the show and we were talking about the confusion of those categories in a world that moves extremely fast. Yeah. And so he was talking about the problem of police violence and the way that stereotypes sneak into these interactions between authorities and citizens when you don't have a lot of time to get to know somebody and you end up making a snap judgment and someone's life is on the line. And it's, it seems those kinds of experiences or those kinds of situations where we're, we're thinking on the wrong time scale to address the issue are proliferating in a society where the technological infrastructure is going faster and faster all the time. And so when you talk about, again, in, in this piece, you're talking about how, and this really, uh, this is one of those kind of paradoxes that's inherent to this that I love. When you mention in talking about requisite variety in cybernetics, that the greater the variety of perturbations a system may be subjected to, the larger the variety of actions it needs to remain in control. Right. So there's kind of a fork here and I'm, you can take it either way you want or both or neither. <laughs> right. But there's that famous preprint from, I can't remember who wrote it, the, the artificial intelligence piece on how optimal policies tend to seek power. Mm -hmm. Right. And like the definition of intelligence is about navigating that kind of uncertainty yep. and being able to make decisions across timescales and tuning for the appropriate level of variety. And then to me, this sounds a lot like to just be a kind of an armchair guy about this. You're a man on the street. This sounds a lot like what you hear Buddhist teachers saying about the importance of mind training practices in the intensity and the pace of modern life that in a weird way, there's a kind of identity between more control and more unattachment or like the, the ability to relax and allow things to percolate before making a decision. So this is me trying to edge into the other piece that you've done on Buddhist philosophy, but I'm, I'd love to hear you riff yeah, on so, this. So 
in general, in a network, when you have more and more interactions, that creates more and more change that propagates through the network. So you end up with chaotic dynamics very quickly. And of course, this can have its negative sides. Again, there's this balance between order and chaos that we could dive into. But of course, we tend to notice the negative effects of increasing connectivity, of accelerating interactions. And in the stock market with electronic trading, this was very clear with flash crashes a decade ago. And you can start seeing it everywhere. And of course, in, if you are in a chaotic regime, there's very little you can control because changing is, is constant. And of course, we could try to <laughs> apply masterful inactivity, but of course, that would assume that things tend to their optimal state and then we don't really need to intervene because it does happen that sometimes, let's say, there's situation and your response to the situation makes it worse. So it would be better just not to do anything and let things run its course. But in most cases, that's not the case. And But of course, what to do is an open question, especially in situations that are novel that we've never encountered before. How do you make decisions when there's no previous example? And there are so many things that could go wrong or not necessarily wrong, but let's say in, in unexpected ways. And that has kind of a tendency of increasing. And of course, there's arguments for trying to slow down the change in order to make it more manageable. So this question of the balance yes. between these two things, and I want to go back just briefly to the frontiers piece, heterogeneity extends criticality. Because you know something that comes up a lot at SFI is the way that given the enormous breadth of the possible, what we find in complex systems is that they actually inhabit very narrow channels mm. of possibility. You talk about like the way that Chris Kempis and Jeff West have shown that all like biophysical scaling puts all of the possible forms of a tree within this mm -hmm. sort of very narrow scope. And so, yeah, I'd like to just given that we could anchor this in a bit more of a sort of a rigorous yes. uh, formalization, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about criticality in light of all of the different ways that we see this manifesting in the world. And you give some really interesting Examples here, talking about arbitrary complexity. Maybe that's something that we can spend a little more time on. Yep. Well, I would like to yeah. ex expand a bit on, on criticality, which a broad way of saying what criticality is simply a regime that's between order phase and chaotic phase, or between two phases, but in general, we could describe them as chaotic or order, but it could be also turbulent and laminar flow in fluid dynamics, or in traffic dynamics, it could be free flow phase where all cars are driving at the same speed or at a desired speed and jammed phase where you have to stop because of high density. And so precisely this scaling phenomenon, power loss and many things have been found close to criticality. And you can see criticality also as a balance and it's a desirable balance because then you get the benefits of both phases. Of course, throughout evolution, you, we observe that many systems are poised near criticality and precisely because they benefit from finding this balance. And as you mentioned, this is like a very narrow region from all possible parameter spaces. And there, we'd like to make a, a small detour and then to turn back to, yeah, to return. Yeah, yeah. If we just look at chemical reactions from all possible chemical reactions, most of them will never take place in our universe. Just so many that there's no possibility that they will happen. And still we have such a rich chemistry that led to biology and the same, all possible biological interactions will never take place. All possible social interactions will never take place. Uh, all possible ideas will never <laughs> materialize. But still that minimum infinitesimal region of the space of the possible that actually gets instantiated even just once in the history of a universe needs to be viable in <laughs> in some way even for a short moment and of course that constrains which ones will survive or which ones will endure which ones will evolve so returning <laughs> into criticality traditional models of complex systems were homogeneous because simply 
it's convenient to treat all the elements of a model in the same way, like in a cellular automaton. So you consider all, all with the same rule, all with the same time, all with the same initial states, perhaps, or just with random states, and then you observe what happens. But then what we began seeing, of course, you look at the real phenomenon, your diversity, different types of heterogeneity. But then when you include that heterogeneity in your models, we realized that the properties that we usually found in criticality that was difficult to get because you need to fine-tune the parameter to reach this phase transition, these same properties you would find for a broader region of the parameter space, the more criticality you add. And this applies for structural criticality, which basically the network topology that has been studied thoroughly in, in network science, but then also the temporal heterogeneity, different elements of data, different times. And it turns out that this was known since the 60s in physics. They're called Griffith's phases, but it's it seems it's a well-kept secret, or at least nobody I know about them. And what we're finding is that also, if you introduce heterogeneity in the functions, that also has a similar effect. And non, not only that, but if you combine them, then they have an additive effect. So basically, when you include these heterogeneities, you make it easy for evolution or whatever process to have these properties that are desirable because of criticality. So then search becomes even easier. So th there's a question that comes up on the show a lot, and I love interrogating this from as many angles yeah. as possible. And we're here, and we've already kind of teased it, which is, and I'm going to talk about this with Jeff West and Manfred Laublicker, have them on the show, because Manfred's been writing about the Anthropocene, this era of geological history on this planet defined by the predominance and geological record of human activity. Yes, This is an unprecedented time Maybe you can look at the formation of a modern atmosphere two billion years ago as a kind of a precursor. Yeah. But you have this time where it's the network topology, as you're talking about it, is one where suddenly these ephemeral fleeting creatures on the surface of the planet are capable of adjusting the outcomes of so many different things over such a large time scale. And yet we're not actually <laughs> we're not actually adapting. At, yeah. at those time scales, we're not actually. So you've got these this weird situation where you can you have a like a multi billionaire who decides that they want to launch a new industry, and then you know they're going to be then pulling up all our rare earth minerals and like laying out some tons of concrete and changing the atmosphere with rocket fuels and like all. And so this is a very this is related to the problem that I talked about with Doyne Farmer, where Doyne's work in market ecology showed that you mentioned flash crashes a moment ago. And Doyne showed that systems like Robinhood, which allow for fee-free trading by retail investors, lead to enormous market instability. And so on the one hand, it's an opportunity for people. And on the other hand, it's like arguable that more people are getting wrecked by this system than are benefiting from it. And so, yeah, yeah I feel like I just keep going back to this, but like, when it comes to when slower is faster, one of the big questions that seems to come up a lot with respect to complexity economics is how do we slow down, right? <laughs> like how do we lower the temperature of this system enough that we can actually aggregate information at the time scale where we're capable of making decisions? And, yeah. and how do market incentives actually achieve this? How can we bring this closer in practice? And I'm curious what your thoughts yes. are on all of it. Two ways. The problem of, let's say, when slower is faster, is that if you go beyond the phase transition, then your performance decreases. So you want to maximize your performance. And there are two ways of achieving that. One, of course, it's slowing down, but another is changing the system so that it can go as fast as you want it to go. But then, of course, that increases the incentive of going even faster, and then you have the same problem again. And also, many of the issues you mentioned it could be argued that it's unbalancing our, our planets, our economy, our way of life. But on the other hand, it is true that it, these changes kind of drive systems out of their natural states or preferred states. But at the end, um, unstable configurations are not sustainable. So sooner or later, they will create a new balanced state, just like the great oxidation event transformed the atmosphere actually created a niche for more complex and richer life. The question, of course, within our lifetimes is, okay, how much 
suffering can we prevent <laughs> how much damage can we avoid and in many cases even when we have enough information or enough tools to be able to say okay this will be the consequences of this trajectory it's like we won't do anything until it's too late and even after it's too late probably we will just say oh too bad it's too late <laughs> then we cannot do anything so with the pandemic i was thinking well maybe it will have the added benefit that we'll be able to be better prepared to kind of face global challenges but <laughs> i think it showed that we are incapable of dealing with global challenges and if we were unable to coordinate internationally to deal with the pandemic i don't think we have much chance with climate change so we'll just take the hits as they come and yeah try to solve issues as they appear and think we have the tools for global social coordination and decision making to make better decisions or well yeah who we'll have better actions at this stage so a kind of a related question given that you just gave a talk on anti-fragility yeah is that this is the third regime that we haven't really spent a lot of time on in this conversation the notion that there are ways in which certain systems can actually benefit from perturbations. And, and so maybe, like I've seen a lot of conservation ecologists come around to this, and you mentioned this in the talk, you know, that there are ways that rather than trying to preserve a kind of retro-romantic Eden-type landscape, that yes. we can accept the fact that things are changing and then we can try and tune both our systems and the kind of perturbations that we hit them with Yes. so as to create structures that actually become stronger yes. through through our meddling. And so I'd love to hear you bring in, unpack anti-fragility for people and then um, yes. bring in, bring that piece into this conversation. And yes. So anti-fragility is a concept defined by Nassim Taleb more than 10 years ago in his book of the same name. And he asks, okay, what's the opposite of fragility? We kind of know what's fragility. And people would tell, well, robustness. And he was like, well, no, robustness is the lack of fragility. I'm not interested uh, on things that, let's say, don't care whether there is perturbation or noise or not. How would you call things that benefit from noise, that thrive with perturbations? And since he didn't find a better term, he coined anti-fragility. And uh, there are specific phenomena that we can call antifragile, like stochastic resonance or simulated annealing, and many other examples that you can say, okay, uh, hormesis, let's say systems where noise improves the performance of the system. And however, to be able to design antifragile systems, you need to be able to predict or to know what will be the magnitude of the perturbations the systems will have to deal with. And uh, yeah, that, that's tricky precisely because of computational reducibility. Because in, in many cases, since complex systems are limited in their predictability, then we cannot answer a priori what would happen if we have this or that intervention. So we still have an ideology where we want to be sure of the decisions we make, what will be the consequence, even if we were wrong, at least we have the illusion that we wanted something to do. So it would be very difficult to convince anybody to say, hey, let's try in this ecosystem to intervene with these substances or with these species, and then we'll see whether it's good or bad. <laughs> Most people say that doesn't sound like a good idea. But what's the Ricard Soleil <laughs> bioterraforming <laughs> or biosphere? Yes. But not only we don't have better way of doing this, but it seems that unless we get very sophisticated computer simulations, and that will take a few decades, uh, so far we don't have better alternatives. So in a way, it's difficult to say, okay, we want the planet to be with all these properties, and that's how we will get there. So I guess that we will have to satisfy ourselves with a more <laughs> modest approach and just see, okay, we know recent history, we know where we are now, we know possible trajectories, and we have a very limited interventions we can have. And from those, we, we have to choose which one's viable. And from there, we'll keep on learning how to better take our place in, in the universe. But I think that all this already turning back into philosophy until recently or perhaps now science had a vision okay the more we know 
we will be able to control nature and then we will be able to do whatever we want for our own purposes. And since we are slowly accepting that there are many things we cannot know a priori and that our control is limited, it's more productive to see ourselves not as controllers or of nature, but as part of nature. And then it's the question is not how can we transform nature for our purposes, but how can we better take our place in nature? So that brings us right around to where I wanted to <laughs> take this, which is back into your philosophical writings. Yeah. And so you mentioned again, and how can we think the complex? You talk about how self-organization deals a blow to the dualism of classical thinking as it blurs the distinction between matter and mind. And you explain how from the cybernetic perspective, there's no strict boundary between material and mental components. You talk about the extended mind and kind of cyborg theory. And when we had Caleb Scharf on the show talking about the data ohm, these kinds of questions are really on a lot of people's minds now in a big yes. way with the fact you can't get away from conversations around artificial intelligence and what it means to entrust machine learning with tasks that we have conventionally understood to be the, the exclusive province of human creativity. So here, I want to go finally into... This is a piece that you wrote on the scale of selves, information, life, and Buddhist philosophy. Because again, there is there is a kind of a subcurrent or an undercurrent of Buddhist thinking in the history of the complex systems domain. You go back yep. to Varela and Maturana, Rana's piece on a calculus for self-reference back in the 70s, these kinds of things. And yet, something that doesn't come up a lot in this stuff. Anyway, I would love to hear you just drop this piece on us because... There are a couple of really juicy, interesting things you say in here that, that I want to address, but I want to give you the chance to unpack it for us first. Yes, so we can say that Western philosophy has been dominated by the success of physics in describing certain aspects of our world. But then that has led people, including some from this institute, to believe that, let's say, what reality is what physics is, basically matter and energy. And then let's say matter and energy organize themselves and then you have biology and society and ideas and everything but all of these are epiphenomena however you end up unable to explain let's say what life is what the mind is what well whatever that is in terms of physics because not only the properties of life but simply we can say that living systems use information with meaning and then you cannot define what the meaning of information or symbol will be from physics because it's arbitrary. However, we can agree that the meaning of information can have causal influence on matter and energy. So I would argue, and many people wouldn't agree with me, <laughs> that there's this causal influence that cannot be reduced to matter and energy. So one alternative, instead of describing the world in terms of matter and energy is to describe it in terms of information. And you can describe matter energy as particular case of information. And there you can avoid this dualist trap where you cannot explain one from the other. And in, in a way, in Buddhist philosophy, you have a similar approach in the sense that it is said that the distinction between the observer, the observed, and the action of observing is an illusion. And what this means is that you cannot really speak of an observer without some physical world. But of course, you cannot speak about a physical world without an observer to describe it. And of course, the action of this observing process. So seeing this as part of the same thing and not divisible kind of solves all these problems of whether objectivity or subjectivity are the best approach. It's just like you need both. And that's just one one aspect of things that that could be said on the matter so there's just a couple little pieces i want to quote out of here and then you can just riff on yourself here because <laughs> i thought this was it was interesting how you say for instance when we're getting back to where we started this conversation and talking about an inherent pluralism to the approach of modeling yes. the world you mentioned in scales, and we've talked about this on the show, that a field like sociophysics works because if you back away far enough from people, mm -hmm. then you can model people as though they are just molecules. Yeah. But if you get people reject this, if you get in close enough, then you get in these systems where you don't want to make deterministic claims about the dignity of a free will and a human actor. And Sean Carroll is somebody who's written a lot on this as, as well. And the, this question of finding one's level, what is the appropriate skill? 
which to explore phenomenon. You, in connecting this to Buddhism, you make this the following claim that at the highest scale, everything is included, therefore form is emptiness, while at the lowest scale, everything is possible, emptiness is form. And then later, as this pertains to the issue of selfhood, at any scale except at the highest, we will be leaving something out of a description. The highest scale is not always practical. We need to make distinctions to take distinctions. We can conclude that the best scales of description of selves will be those at which decisions are made. Different decisions, different scales. If the decision is about our biosphere, we should forget about our individuality. But if we are hungry, we must focus on sustaining our decaying bodies. It's funny because this is so clearly instantiated in the biology of – I had the opportunity to talk to Penn State Emeritus Gary Weber once who meditated for 35 years consistently. And at some point, he was no longer modeling a self in his experience of the world. He said the only time that a self appeared to him – was when his blood sugar was dangerously low. And so there's, yeah, so it does seem as though, like you were saying earlier, that evolution has had enough time to find a way to create requisite temporospatial heterogeneity within even a single person, where sometimes you want a self and sometimes you don't. And it really just depends on the scale at which you have to be making your decisions. So that's the last little ball of yarn I wanted to put together for you and then just let you carry it home into, yeah. it's been a couple of years since you've written this. And yep. yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So it, it reminds me of Fraser Lake from Cosmosalis. He, he wrote that a model should be able to predict, well, I'm kind of misquoting him, but Something like a model should predict the most with the least information or something like that. And again, predict the most about what? <laughs> it depends at which scale. So again, if you want lots of detail, then your model will be inevitably more complex. If you want to look at things at a very high level, then you can get away with a very abstract model. And also, in some cases, it might seem that if your model is not predictive, it doesn't work. But we forget that modeling also can be useful just to understand phenomena. So that there are many models that are not realistic at all, but you can understand the nature of phenomena much better, throwing much of the details. So the, this reminds me of when we were exploring with some colleagues, these self-organizing traffic lights in a very abstract city grid model with cellular automata where you had duality between cars and spaces, which and infinite acceleration. And the physics were like, <laughs> not completely unrealistic. But this simplification allowed us to very clearly identify 10 phase transitions that you have in this system. And if you add the realism, these phase transitions blend away, so you cannot identify them clearly. So again, like arguing for, let's say, a more inclusive perspective for studying phenomena in the sense that you will not find the best model, just like you won't find the best search algorithm because different search spaces have different shapes. So then there will be different algorithms that will be best for that. And the same, for studying phenomena, you will be better off if you have multiple perspectives. And that's one of the benefits of multidisciplinarity and places like SFI where this is promoted. Of course, in some cases, it's not easier because difficult to communicate and different people with different languages. But I guess that if we find better ways of facilitating this multidisciplinary interaction and we are more open to what other people think and uh, not try to assert ourselves as the ultimate truth and everyone else is wrong. But okay, I might have some something to contribute and then maybe other people have something else to contribute. And if we agree that in a group, most probably will be reaching better decisions than fighting for dominating the <laughs> let's say, for finding a single best answer. Yeah, I think it will be not that we will solve our, all our problems, but at least we will be facing them with better alternatives. Yeah. So just kind of in closing, and then I want to give you just an opportunity to show this book you're working on. This, is, this comes up in term that you cited in that first paper, meta-representation. And I've also heard it called meta-theory or meta-methodological research. This is connected to a conversation that I heard David Krakauer talking about, the work that he's done on national constitutions and how if we think about constitutions as a kind of regulatory network for the state, 
there are times when you want a more extensive prohibitive framework and there are times when you want to open it up and let it just as we were talking about with the child adult explore exploit tension but we don't seem to have as generally as a species we don't seem to have a very good grasp on how to do this yeah. or like when you know what kind of provisions we can put in place to know when it's important to close national borders versus when it's important to open them and i'm just curious if you have links that you can point us to as far as research that's been done in this area by yourself or by others or real world instances where this is being done very well that that people listening might be able to model in the way that they think through the regulation of their own organizations or governance yeah. issues etc yeah no, i think we we've begun exploring the good way of dealing with organizations or countries as you say since the demands are so dynamic we saw it with the pandemic that like almost all decisions were wrong because like, <laughs> Because, okay, if we have too strict lockdowns, then people will get crazy and then we'll have revolts. But then if we let everything do whatever they want, we will have so many million deaths. So <laughs> you need to consider so many factors and at the end, you will be wrong anyway. And people will hate you because of negative consequences, not considering all the, how much worse it could have been. And I guess that, let's say, our world becomes more complex precisely because of more interactions and more speed. And we will face more and more these conditions where perhaps you won't even find like a Pareto front where, let's say, it's like the best combination of two variables, but then, okay, now it's 20 variables. <laughs> and any possible solution will give you like very bad outcomes for most of them. <laughs> so how to take good decisions in those contexts, it might be even overwhelming because you'll say, well, anyway, most of the variables will be very bad. So what should we try to save or preserve? And you see it in many countries, no? In United States, there's a big high value given to democracy, but in many countries that they have violence, famine, even insecurity, they will say, well, I don't care that much about democracy. Let's just have stability. And then they will be willing to vote for a dictator and they will be better off with, let's say, without certain freedoms, without free press, without many opportunities. But let's say if crime rates are not as high as they used to be, then they will gladly take that option. And I don't think we can say or they're wrong. It's just like <laughs> giving the conditions, their options are so bad that the least worse possibility that of course can be criticizable. It's a bad choice, but all the other choices are even worse. So I don't know whether we are kind of heading towards more and more of those situations, whether the speed of progress will start slowing down because of course, tendencies tend to change, and we have seen accelerating and accelerating change, but cars are already invented, flight is already invented, the internet is already there. So of course, there will be new technologies, but how transformative will they be? So it might be that change starts slow, slowing down a bit, and maybe we'll be able to, let's say, take advantage of what we have. I don't know, because it's also sometimes we have a romantic view of the past in the sense that we worry about all the problems that we have now injustice and so on but it would be difficult to pinpoint any point in our history where we were better off <laughs> or we didn't have other problems that we are glad that we don't have anymore and okay now we complain about the problems we have now yeah now we're kind of into that moore's law critique yeah now, but it does seem as though the late model smartphones compared to the phones two years ago yeah. not all that different and maybe that's like former SFI trustee Stuart Brand said, when progress happens fast enough, people call it change and they want it to stop. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it does seem like we're on the cusp of some sort of mass call for regulation on technological innovation, the rights around that, so that people have a bit more of a grasp of what it's going to look yeah. like in five years. Uh -huh. Yeah, there are incentives for 
companies and for people to change as fast as possible to get an edge in the market and so on. But if at some point that instability brings more drawbacks than benefits, then very probably regulations should kick in and see how can we still have innovation. But as you say, we don't need to have new phones every year because anyway, they're not that different. And if some companies lose a few billion dollars, but you save the sanity of millions of people, I guess it's a good exchange. Or to put it back in sort of a Buddhist formalization, I have an old friend who decided to experiment by refusing to speak in the first person for weeks just to see what kind of effect it would have on his consciousness. And he said that within a few days, he stopped experiencing an egoic bounded self, but that after a few weeks, his wife got furious with him and (laughs) begged him to start referring to himself in the first person again, because it was interfering with their ability to communicate as partners. So there is always that question of like, how far out on a limb can you get before it's time to crawl back to the tree? Anyway, so... Yeah, let's talk about your book. You're here on sabbatical and you're working on this thing. Yes. And I guess you have to hand in a manuscript later this year. Maybe. So, <laughs> yeah. So let's lead out with just a little bit of a teaser for the yes. book that you're writing. Yes. So the excuse for my sabbatical here at SFI, which I enjoyed greatly already halfway through, it's to write a book about balance, which is a narrative that kind of helps bring together many concepts related to complex systems for a general audience. So also the strategy that I follow is to give a talk on one chapter every five weeks, and that kind of keeps the tempo to (laughs) advance at a certain pace on the book. It's not that by the end of the sabbatical, I already have the full manuscript, but maybe at the end of 2023, I'll have a first draft. So um, yeah, it's been a great experience because it's much easier to pitch ideas to all the community here before they're written and then get feedback. And then I notice what I'm missing or maybe what's an excess. And then by the time I write, then I already advanced some of that. And of course, the writing also gets polished. But then it's kind of very helpful to to concatenate ideas in this way. Any parting thoughts or burning questions for you or places you want to direct listeners before we sign off? Mm, yeah, been very interesting conversation. Like in some aspects, like we need to focus on our individuality, but also there's this cliche that when there's an emergency, like in the Titanic, all the civility goes overboard. And of course, there are many doomsday scenarios that we might think about and then we'll say, okay, all the sociality and cooperation that we've achieved, it might be more fragile than we think. But then at the end, if the conditions are proper, I guess that it's not an exclusive choice in the sense that we have to decide whether we'll be more individual or more cooperative and kind of become part of the machine or (laughs) in the sense that we can at the same time enjoy our personal lives, but basically avoid conflicts at the social level and international level at the global level and of course this has been studied extensively with game theory all these dilemmas are precisely when the individual goals are not aligned with the group goals or the social goals but in a way this is a problem i say of a badly designed game because if you if you design the games properly then everyone should strive for the best collective situation because then everyone benefits from that as well. So if we manage to design our social systems or our incentives in such a way that if the decisions I make at the same time maximize my benefit and maximize the benefit of society, then there's no dilemma and then we're all happy. So some of our work has been in that direction. And of course, you cannot change people in the sense that, okay, let's, I don't know, get rid of people from this state and then we'll bring people from other states because they think differently and then that will solve all the problems you cannot change so one intervention we did in the metro of mexico city it was like that you cannot change the passengers of mexico city but you want to change their behavior what can you do well you can change their interactions and like that maybe the system will perform better and we managed to do that and it's like an illustration of how could you change an economy where you won't change business people, but maybe you can change their interactions in order to have a better distribution of wealth. 
you will not change politicians, but maybe if you change their interactions, corruption will be reduced and maybe governance will be improved. We will not change teachers, but maybe arranging interactions will improve education systems. So I think that by understanding better complex systems, of course, we will be able to deal better with complexity in our daily lives, in our organizations, in international relations, and also focusing not only on, let's say, objective side of things, but on how they're related to each other. And precisely because in many cases, the possible interventions are at the interaction level, not at the object level. It's funny, just re reflecting on this, I'm going to have John Cog on the show at some point this spring to talk about the, the writing he's done on William James. And William James has that famous essay on some mental effects of the earthquake from when he was teaching at Stanford in 1906 during the big one in mm -hmm. San Francisco. And how he said to his surprise, after the earthquake, everyone came out of their buildings and was just spontaneously helping one another. Yes. So the, back to the question that you asked earlier, which is kind of how much suffering is necessary to improve things. I was like, maybe the structure of the environment was just too partitioned. Yep. It was just, it was too easy to forget that you're part of a society with other people until you have to come out of the building for yeah. safety. Well, I don't know, maybe for our civilization, it will be similar like with double A, that you need to hit rock bottom before you actually <laughs> take things seriously. But then, of course, the question is, how deep is that rock bottom? Because it seems we're just going deeper and nothing changes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carlos, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank Same you here. for the work that you've done, not only as a researcher, but as a, a synthesist and reviewer and communicator of this stuff. I always appreciate hearing you riff on these things. Yep. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.